right, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. For those of you that are just joining us, just in time, we started a new series called Messy Church. This is really a series about living more fully out of your heart with God and with others um, and all that that entails. So if you missed last week, that was essentially an introduction that was at us answering the question from the Word of God, uh, why this and what is it? Or what is it and why, why should we care? Uh, from this week forward, we're going to answer the how question from the scriptures. How do you do it? How do we go deeper? How do we grow in emotional and spiritual health? Uh, and what we're going to speak about this morning is really the bedrock for everything else that, that, that comes. So really cool that you're here, um, that you made it this Sunday. This is an important one. We mentioned last week that emotionally healthy spirituality involves, uh, at the most basic level, what's going on inside your heart. You are a heart person. And so being uh, aware of the things that are going on that you might be able to interact with God at the heart level. We have a word for this. We call it sometimes self-awareness. That's what we're going to talk about today. It's a vital part of growing spiritually, as I hope you uh, you find, and right now I just want to start uh, with a vivid example of this from the book of Genesis. Uh, as some of you are maybe still turning there, we're kind of jumping directly into a story, uh, in the middle of a story, and so it's kind of a strange one. I want to give you a little bit of, a, uh, of some background before we read it together, but this is, this is about Jacob. And if you know anything about Jacob, you know he's been a, a kind of a sly guy his entire life. Uh, he's tricked most of the people in his life. He's used people. Uh, he's lived a fake, deceitful life. And he's broken just about every relationship that he's uh, encountered. Uh, his, uh, his wife, his father-in-law. Uh, out of that, actually, uh, comes some mutual deception from the father-in-law. That's why, as we're going to read, he has two wives. So it's re- a really messy endeavor right there. He's, he's tricked his brother. He's tricked everybody that's, that's been in his life. And right now, it's all coming to a head uh, where he's, he's made some, some bad dis- decisions and choices in his life, and now he's paying the price. He's now on the run from Laban, his father-in-law, because he ruined that relationship, and he's now running into the wilderness uh, to another town where he gets word that his brother, another relationship he's ruined, is on the way to meet him. Only this time, uh, the word comes back that his brother is coming to meet him with 400 men. Now, if you've read the story beforehand, uh, you know. If you haven't, I'll just tell you, Jacob messed that relationship up bad. Uh, Deceived him, ripped him off. He was a fraud. He basically uh, took his inheritance. And so now he's seeing Esau for the first time since that moment. Esau is on the road to meet him with 400 men. This is not his family and friends, okay? Uh, in that day, 400 men, that was the size of a, of, a, uh, of a militia. So Esau is about to meet Jacob, the deceiver, with an army. Now, if you're Jacob, how do you feel right now? You've had better days. That's where we're going to pick up the story right now. Ready? Genesis chapter 32, we'll read verse 22 through 31. And it says this, The same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, 
and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the, uh, the, the, the man said to him, what is your name? And Jacob replied, it's Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And the, uh, then Jacob asked him, please Please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray together corporately as a church that you would minister to us by the words that you have spoken through this historical event, an actual life, an actual heart that has learned to come alive to you. You speak through us, through this, that our hearts too may come alive to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there's that section of the story. Again, just to recap, what we've uncovered so far last week was this idea that we get from the scriptures and from the life of Jesus that to grow deeper in God on the heart level, we must first grow deeper in our awareness of our own heart. It starts in the heart. You are a person that is driven by your heart, by God's design. It makes sense that we are in tune and in touch with the driver's seat of our own life, this, this heart that God has created us and fashioned us with. The heart includes a lot of things. It includes your willpower. I believe the Bible uses heart and spirit interchangeably. Uh, It also includes uh, your ability to make decisions. But included in the heart is also your emotions. And this whole series is about the emotional component of your spirituality. So, to grow deeper in awareness of our heart, we're speaking about the things that we feel, knowing what's going on deep down inside, and the subsequent motivations that come out of some of those deep places, and bringing those things in line with God, who knows all, sees all, and rules and reigns. What I want you to see in this passage right off the bat is that with Jacob, this process doesn't even start until he finds himself in a place of solitude. It doesn't even begin until we see in those four words, Jacob was left alone. Think about this, up until this point, Jacob was all, always around people, always surrounded by people. He's got, he's got 11 kids or whatever. Two wives, his family is huge, he has a caravan of people. Even before that, he's always uh, extremely attached, it seems, to people in his life. To Laban, his father-in-law, to his his own father, to his mother, Rachel, uh, Rachel, uh, uh, to Esau, and not always in the most healthy ways. 
He's connected to people in ways that you and I might consider to be unhealthy. And for maybe, I don't know if this is the first time, but for the first time we see recorded in Scripture, Jacob finds himself alone in a place of solitude. Solitude for so much of Christian history and in Scripture seems so powerful to the person uh, who, who finds themselves in it because it takes them away from so many distractions. It strips you of social environments and from noise, whether it's noise of people or noise of work or noise of recreation or the noise of your own mind and thoughts where we are so easy, uh, so easily susceptible to, to put up defenses and fronts. It's often in the place of solitude we're able to look more deeply at what's there. And in this moment of solitude, a guy steps in on the scene, starts wrestling with Jacob. This is really weird. Uh, if you put yourself in the, in the shoes of Jacob, he's kind of traveling in the dark. He's by himself. He's scared for his life because of Esau coming to meet him with a militia of grown men. Now, you're Jacob, you're walking for, uh, you know, taking a little creek walk in the dark, and some guy jumps out of the shadows and starts fighting with you. What are you thinking? You're like, is, he, is this Esau? Is he sent, you know, is he, did he send an assassin to take me out? I don't know. Like, but for an entire full-blown night, they are fighting all night, wrestling, contending with one another. And it turns out this is not a normal person. This is not a, this is not a normal human. We get two clues for that, right? The first is the fact that after fighting all night, this, this man touches Jacob on the hip and dislocates his socket. That's not normal. That's like some crazy Krav Maga right there. That is like... So it seems like even Jacob understands this is not normal. And we even see in his response after the man wants to, to leave at the breaking of dawn... He knows that this is a special human because of his request. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Jacob isn't fighting with a normal man. He's in the presence of the divine. Now, I don't know if this is an angel or some kind of representation of God, but the clues that we get in the scripture and what we see later and what scriptures will testify to later is that this is holy ground. Jacob is, in one way or another, fighting with the almighty God. As soon as he knows this, he asks what probably a lot of us ask in situations of hardship and travail. God, bless me. Jacob says the same thing. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Now, that's a, that's a good request. But what do you and I generally have in mind when we want God to bless us? Remember where Jacob is? He's in a place of deep anxiety. His life is in danger it's falling apart. All of his relationships are broken. He's on the verge of losing everything, and he wants a blessing. I don't know what he's thinking, but I know what I would be thinking if I were in that situation. God bless me. In other words, take away my anxiety. Fix my problems. Make Esau like me. Get my friends back. Also take a well-paying job and a house on the Riviera while you're at it. How do we expect God to bless us in times of darkness and suffering? Sometimes we want him to fix our problems. Sometimes we want him to make us feel better. But how does God bless Jacob? 
How does God most often work in the heart? Notice he never removes Jacob's problems. Esau's still coming. He never makes Jacob feel better about himself. Actually, maybe he feels worse after this. Loses the functionality of his hip. What does he do? How does God work in a person's heart? First thing that God does with Jacob is he seems to hold up a mirror to Jacob's face and force him to look at himself. I'm getting this from verse 27. It says the the angel or whoever it was said to him, what is your name? And he replied, it's Jacob. Now this is more than just some friendly social banter, right? The exchanging of names. This is more than just uh, the exchanging of business cards at a cocktail party. Like, hey, what's your name? Oh, I'm Jacob, what's your name? I'm God, nice to meet you. In the context of the Bible, to give someone your name was a tremendous act of self-disclosure. Back then, names actually meant something. Here, my name just means Chris, right? But in that century, it would have have meant Christ-bearer. Abraham's name meant father of many nations. That would have been embarrassing to introduce yourself back in that day when you had no kids, which he didn't. God said, I'm going to rename you the father of many nations. Hi, I'm the father of many nations. Oh, where's your kids? Don't have any, but you know, whatever. A name in Hebrew thought at that time actually referred to your deepest identity, your characteristics and your attributes. This is actually a moment of tremendous self-awareness for Jacob. God is confronting him with who he is. He's holding up a mirror by simply asking him, what is your name? And the best part about it is that when he comes face to face with with who he is and it's not pretty, he admits it and he says, I'm Jacob. Do you know what Jacob means? It means the supplanter or the deceiver. In fact, Esau, Jacob's own brother, in Genesis 27 verse 36, when he was complaining about being ripped off for the umpteenth time by his brother, says to his parents, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he cheated me these two times, he took away my birthright, and now he's taken away my blessing. Jacob means deceiver. And so when Jacob responds, he's not just introducing himself, he seems to be confessing to be admitting for the first time what everybody else already knew. I'm a fraud. I'm a deceiver. This is a tremendous moment of self-awareness. I want to define what that means just for the purpose of the series, what self-awareness is in the most simple terms. It means that you know, if you're self-aware or growing in self-awareness, you, you know what's going on in your own heart. That's it. That's where we're going to leave this. You know what's going on in your own heart. You're at least aware of what's going on in your own heart. Not only what's going on in your own heart, but the ways that you express it in action and behavior. You know, or you at least have a clue about what's going on. Not the least of which are the things that we feel in the moment, our emotions. Now there are dozens of different feelings that we encounter, hundreds even on a daily basis. Experts today have riddled this down to about six. Basic human emotions, I'll give them to you right now. Anger, fear, 
Happiness, sadness, surprise, and shame. Now, out of that flow, a lot of different nuance, right? You might feel irritated. That comes really from anger. You might be anxious. That's a form of fear. You might feel disgust or guilt. That's a a type of shame. But at the very basic level, the deepest part of the human heart, we can say that the things that we feel on a regular basis are either anger, fear, happiness, sadness, surprise, and shame. So self-awareness for us Biblical self-awareness is knowing which one of those it is in the moment that you're feeling it and how you are reacting out of that. This might not seem like the most important thing for you, but what we have already uncovered, what we're uncovering now, is that the testimony of Scripture is that God meets people at the heart level. That means emotions are important. That means that's where God meets his people is in the place of their feeling. Not only their feeling, but certainly not apart from their feeling. That means if you are not opening up your heart, aware of what's going on at the heart level, then he must be meeting you on the surface. The element of you that is not actually the truest version of you. It might be the, the, the part of you that you're projecting It might be the the part of you that you you think other people want to see, but it's not really you. So when God meets us, he's meeting us out there somewhere, and we're wondering why we're not personally transformed by by some of those spiritual disciplines and practices by God himself is because we have closed off some of the deepest parts of our heart to the presence of God. What does it mean to open it? It means at least to have that moment in front of the mirror with God to see some of those deep parts of the heart where anger, fear, happiness, sadness, surprise, and shame reside, not to feel guilty and condemned, right? Those six things, those emotions, those are amoral. They're neither good nor bad. We saw that last week. They might be pleasant or unpleasant, but they're they're not bad or good. They're just real. And part of the journey of emotional and spiritual health is understanding and growing understanding uh, what you're feeling in that moment and inviting God into some of those deep areas. I remember a time a while back where I thought I was an angry, irritable, combative person. I was, but I thought it stopped there. People would question things that I was doing and I would get irritated with them. Uh, People would come against me and I would fight back. And I found myself just easily irritable by certain things that people would say and just kind of chalked it up to like, I'm a hostile person, uh, I have a short temper, whatever it was. And I remember in one season in my life just taking, uh, having this Jacob experience, which involved, it always seems to involve solitude, getting away from uh, from the noise, from the, the people, and being alone with God as Jesus so often did. And in that place of solitude, just begin asking God, why? It's been my favorite question these days. Why? I got that question from the psalmist. Psalm 42, verse 5. He asks his own soul a question. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? If I could paraphrase this, he's saying, why are you so depressed, O my soul? 
Why are you so anxious? Why are you so stirred up? And I begin asking that question of myself. Why do I get so irritated with people? And, you know, in solitude and silence before God, maybe the answer to that immediately was, because they offended me, you know. And then I'd start thinking through it, and the Lord would bring me through this, this process, and I'd be like, well, actually, after I calmed down a little bit, I'd be like, what they said wasn't even that big of a deal. Why am I so jumpy and jittery? Like, that was, oh, well, they're coming against me, or, well, they're, they're, they're turning down what I, uh, a good idea that I had, or, well, they're, they're, they're judging me or condemning me, and I start thinking about it more. Well, why do I think that? I know that person. I know they love me. I know they have my best interests in mind. And as I begin to ask this question, why do I feel this way? What is it in me? Why is my soul in turmoil? What's going on? The Lord would start to peel back the layers and reveal deeper things. I started to realize, well, I get irritated when something like this happens because um, I feel rejected. And that feeling of rejection is so powerful in me because I've been rejected for so many years. In the earliest part of my life, I'm afraid of being rejected again. Uh, And when that person questions my idea, I don't feel like they're questioning my idea, I feel like they're questioning my identity. And so I protect myself against rejection by rejecting that person first. And came out angry, hostile, but there was something deeper. Uh, there were parts of my life growing up that were out of control. And growing up, I decided I am going to take control. I became a controlling person. I would manipulate situations and relationships. I would be controlling. I would assert myself in certain areas because I was afraid of things falling out of control. Maybe if my life was, if things around me were out of control, that was really just a picture of my own life. Uh, I had been taken advantage of by people, and so now uh, I would defend myself by pushing them away or, uh, and by protecting myself from others. I had been humiliated before, hurt by others, so I would be the first one to hurt them at the, at, at the moment that I sniffed or suspected anything. And so I began to lash out. I would either lash out or I would withdraw. In, the, in, in my early, early ages, it was... Physical aggression. As I matured, I stopped doing that and it became more just passive-aggressive aggression. Instead of of attacking people physically, I would attack them socially. Or I would withdraw. And it looked like I was an angry, closed-off, hostile individual, but anger was really just a symptom. And I discovered that by simply asking God of my own heart, why do I feel this way? Where is this coming from? Why am I really irritated? And God would lead me on a journey to discover something deep at the bottom of my heart. I wasn't just angry, I was afraid. It wasn't just anger, that was just a symptom. What was really at the deepest part of my heart was fear. I was afraid of rejection, I was afraid of humiliation, I was afraid of a life coming, uh, uh, becoming out of control, I was afraid of being taken advantage of, of being hurt, abused, left. And so I would do all of those things to people before they do it to me. I had that fear of of, of threat. 
It was my fear that drove me in all of my behaviors. And God was turning on the siren of my heart to try to get my attention. Uh, Dan Allender, a pastor, counselor, and Tremper Longman, local professor, um, expert in the Psalms and the language of the heart in the Hebrew Bible, wrote this. He said, in the Bible, emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, and disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We're frightened and ashamed of leaks into our consciousness. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. It comes when God in solitude in the middle of the night when you're all alone holds up a mirror to you and you're forced to see who you really are. What happens when we refuse God's mirror? And I love that analogy that the Bible uses. James likens God's word to being a mirror that reflects who we really are, that we might come to him to be changed. What happens when we, refl- uh, we refuse the mirror? Think of this uh, by way of illustration. I think of this old story uh, of Nasrudin, an old uh, Greek hero, Russian folklore, Greek folklore. Uh, There's a story told of him, I love this story, where he left his house, came back that night, and was walking up to his doorstep when he realized that he had lost his key. He was locked out. And so he got down outside on his hands and knees and began looking under rocks uh, for his key. He couldn't find it, and so he backed up a little bit where the street lamp was, and he started looking, hoping that the light would show him where the key was. Uh, one of his neighbors came in on the scene, one of his friends, and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm looking for my key. I can't find it. I'm locked out of my house. His friend joined him on the ground, hands and knees, looking uh, for the key to no avail. And at one point, the friend gets up and he says, Nasrudin, uh, can, you know, can you tell me where you think you might have lost your key? Nasrudin said, that's easy. It's in my house. And his friend looks at him and he says, then why are we looking out here? Nasrudin replies, because it's so much lighter out here. It's so much easier to look out here because of the light. The the, the point of the story is showing that the key key to the problems are often not outside of us, but there's something deep going on inside, and yet because it's messy, because it's scary, because it requires a little bit of risk and maybe even a little pain, We'd rather look outside of the house. For me, that meant blaming everybody else except for myself. Blaming communities, blaming people. For you, it might be similar. Looking everywhere outside because the light is better. It's easier to see other people's problems. It's easier to blame uh, your family. It's easier to blame your parents. It's easier to blame your spouse or your kids. It's easier to blame the system that you've been put in. It's easier to blame and look outside. But God holds up a mirror to people to show the transformation that he wants to do inside that person. We must look into the mirror. 
And it's only when God holds up a mirror to Jacob's face that God is able to begin this incredible work of transformation in him. Now we see, we just saw how God works in the heart. It's often by holding up a mirror and us by growing in self-awareness and inviting him in. But what is God's goal for the heart? Look at what, look at what, what it says in verse 28. When Jacob's heart cracks open, the first thing God does is change his name. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. I love this. Notice that this isn't self-awareness for self-awareness sake. Nor is this like modern pop psychology where we're just supposed to feel good about ourselves and grow in our self-esteem. Your self-esteem actually might take a hit if you follow Jesus. Although self-awareness is good, it's not an end to itself. It is to lead us to the Lord in honesty. Nor is this an excuse, nor is self-awareness an excuse for self-pity or enablement or entitlement or victimization. As in saying, you know, in the presence of God, I learned that I am a very greedy person. Well, I guess that's how I'm going to be. God holds up a mirror to his people because he wants to change who they are. He wants to change your name. He wants to change all the things that society, culture, your family, your friends, your enemies, and even you at your worst have told yourself that you are. All the things that have held you back and pushed you down that you believe about yourself today, God wants to change your name. He wants to give you a new identity and bring you into a new family and say, that's how you used to be, but you're a different person now. You used to be a slave, now you are a son. You used to be a refugee, now you are a citizen. You used to be isolated and alone, now you have a family. You used to be lost and broken, and now you will be made whole. I want to change your name. Notice that this liberation isn't in Jacob's or our ability to be introspective. This isn't like, I'm going to look inside to find the solution to all of my problems. If I can look inside at my own power, pull myself up by the bootstraps, then I'll be a better person. No. God holds up a mirror to show how weak we are in hopes that that would drive us to the power of God. We see this so clearly in what God actually names Jacob. If this were just a feat of self-help, you would expect that God, uh, God through this, this man, angel, whatever it was, say, you know what? I'm done messing with you. Your name used to be Deceiver, but I'm going to name you Fighter. Because you fought me and you're awesome. He names him Israel. You know what Israel means? Most people believe The the closest translation of the word Israel is God fights. He doesn't say, you fought and you're awesome. He said, you're a deceiver. And I'm going to rename you after who I am. I'm fighting on your behalf. Self-awareness, holding up the mirror to see what's in there by the, the help of God is not in itself a saving work. We can just call it a posture of receiving. It's simply us opening our heart by the power of the Spirit to allow God to work on our behalf. 
to open up the depths of the heart for Christ to dwell and to do what he is so good at doing. For me, when I discovered that instead of anger or irritability, what was really going on inside me was fear and insecurity, God met me in more powerful ways than I had ever encountered before. I would remember in some of those years being like, oh man, I keep getting irritated, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. Ever be, you ever uh, struggle with frustration with people? And I would open up the Bible and I would turn to passages like, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You know, walk in forgiveness. And I'd be like, okay, okay, I'm angry. Stop being angry. Now that verse is true. But do you see how I was misdiagnosing the problem? I was applying it to, to a, a, merely a symptom. Now, as God began to drive me deeper into the dark places of my heart, the real places of my heart, to show me what was there, I, began to be, I was able then to apply the living salve of God's word to the places that were at the, at the deepest part of my heart. Fear and insecurity. Feelings of rejection. I can't tell you how transformative how monumental it was for me to read passages about the love of the Father. Passages I had read for years, now reading, understanding, I am a hurting person and I'm afraid of being rejected, but my Father loves me. My Father will never leave me. Even if my mother and my father reject me, the Lord will take me up. This is love, not that I loved the Father, but that he loved me and gave himself up for me. I began to soak the deepest parts of my heart, not just merely the surface, the deep, dark, nasty parts of the heart with the living power of God's word, and I experienced the presence of God like never before. Why? Because he started to go deeper in my life. How? Because I started opening up what I was feeling to him and to myself. The problem is, we don't always know what we're feeling. And evangelical Christianity has told us that it's not that important. We might not know what we're feeling. We might not know how to grow deeply. We might not know even how to receive from God, even though we're filling our lives with things like Bible reading, prayer, church attendance, and generosity, wondering why things aren't changing deep within the problem, in a lot of cases, is that we just don't know what's going on inside here. If that's you, you're not alone, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 7, the trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. Listen to this line, I don't really understand myself. <laughs> I don't really understand myself. What Paul is speaking about here, and granted, Paul at this point is probably one of the most self-aware people in the world, second to maybe Jesus and David, but he used to be Saul, pretty shallow person. And what he's speaking about in this moment is kind of what Paul's theme is, is this battle between two things, your new self and your false self. This was Paul's theme. He would say in a lot of his writings, what I'm saying to you now, that if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ who's been born again, one of the newest things about you is that your heart has been changed. That means your desires. That means your deepest affections. 
you are now in love with God where maybe you uh, were not before. You love the things of God. You want to grow in the things of God. You're moving in the direction of God, even if it's not perfectly. You have changed at the heart level. But what Paul also says all throughout his writings is you, your, your new heart is not alone. There are remnants of your old life. And he uses this, these analogies uh, of the new self and the false self. And if you think about it, it's two people within you just fighting. One is the new person made in the image of God, reborn to love the kingdom of God and the things of God, wants to be open before God and follow him in all of his ways and come alive to him and love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. But there is what Paul would call the flesh, the sinful nature. And it doesn't want any of those things. It wants to set itself up as the rightful king and ruler. These, this is your tendency to dwell upon yourself, your own human resources. I don't mean the HR department at your workplace. I mean your tendency to try to do everything, to put up walls, to depend on yourself and not God. And these two things are battling. What's that battle look like? Well, I'll just give a few examples if this helps give it a little more flesh. Where do you get your security from? If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a part of you that says, I get my security from being deeply loved by God. But maybe there's another part of you that's saying, yeah, but I'd really love to get on the inside of that social community or clique. Yes, but it's also what other people uh, can do uh, for us, it's what people think of us, it's the things that I have, and these two things are warring in you. For some of you, one of them might be more powerful than the other. Uh, where do you get your significance from? Think about that, and you'll understand where the false self is. There might be a part of you, if you're a believer, that says, my significance comes from belonging to God who is my Father and I need nothing else. But there might be another part of you that is warring against that, saying, my significance comes from all of my accomplishments. You might never say that in church. But if you look at the way that you live your life, you're busy. There's no margin in your life. You work too much. Your relationships are paying the price, you're stretched thin, and you're on the verge of burnout. Why? Because you don't believe what your heart is trying to tell you, your false self. Where does happiness come from? Well, you might say, well, it comes from uh, surrendering to God, but you might be living out of another place. It comes from your attachments in life. Identity is found in who you want others to think you are rather than who you are becoming in Christ. You maintain this life uh, through effort and control rather than living by the grace of God. Uh, you embrace a false veneer that you have set up and projected rather than meeting God in the mess, who you really are when he shows you the mirror. These are all ways that we embrace the false self. And what Jesus does that is so healing and transformative is he flips up a mirror to show you your false self so you'd be disgusted by it and want something better. He did this to an entire church in Revelation chapter three, verse 17, the church in Laodicea. He says, you keep saying that you're rich, that you're prospered, that you need nothing, but you don't realize that you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
What's he doing? He's holding up a mirror. You're projecting an image of yourself that isn't true. I'm showing you one that is, yes, a little less polished, a little uncomfortable, a little dirty, but that's where you are right now. And then the solution that Jesus gives in verse 20 is, I am standing at the door knocking, and if anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Do you see the solution to your problems? Do you see the solution to an emaciated heart? Open the door. And the presence of God will come in in a deeper, more transformative way than you have ever experienced in your life. Open the door. You think you're this way, but I see something deeper. It's okay. Open the door. Allowing God to step in holding up that mirror in front of us, growing in self-awareness so that he can heal us on a deeper level. Now, some of you might say, well, you're saying that we should be more self-aware, but I know that Paul says that we're supposed to crucify ourselves, not be aware of ourselves. This is stupid. He does say that, doesn't he? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. But how are you supposed to crucify what you don't know? He does say in Galatians 5.24, we are to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. How are you going to do that if you don't even know what your passions and desires are? I love what the psalmist would pray in Psalm 26. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and mind. Show me what's in there. Some of you might, uh, might think, you know, you keep talking about being more aware of our hearts and ourselves, but I know that Jesus said we're supposed to deny ourselves We're supposed to lose our lives, not be aware of those things. Again, Jesus always spoke of denying the sinful parts of yourself, the false self. He doesn't tell us to die to the good things that he's working in us. In fact, he would go later on in that very passage passage to say, if you try to hang on to the life that you have now, you will miss out on the life I want to give you. It's not losing a life entirely. It's an exchanging of lives. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, that you have died and your life, your new life, is hidden with Christ in God. What does that entail? He would say in Ephesians 4, putting off the old self and putting on the new self. We're to die to the old self. We're to deny the old self. And you say, yeah, but the heart is deceitful. Who can know it? And how can we possibly be aware of what's going on inside it? That is a direct quotation from Jeremiah chapter 17. Let me read you the verse that comes right after it. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, uh, conduct according to what their deeds deserve. We might not know what's going on inside us, but the Lord does, and he wants to bring you there to hold up a mirror and to change you for the rest of your life. If you're willing to enter into solitude and wrestle with the angel of God. Jacob Jacob suggests that when he did this, he was able to experience God on a deeper level. Listen to what he says. 
It says, Jacob, at the end of our passage, he called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Just a chapter before this, and you have to study Jacob's life, you see that there's, he doesn't have a lot of encounters with God, but he does have two. The one was a chapter prior where he has a dream, God visits him in the dream and he sees all the angelic beings going from uh, earth to heaven. And you know what he says in that moment? He, sa- he wakes up from the dream and he says, surely God was in this place and I did not even know it. Now he's saying, after the mirror was flopped up in front of him, I have seen God face to face and my life has been delivered. That is the difference between a heart that has been opened and a heart that has been closed. That is the difference between a person who is growing in self-awareness and one who is refusing to look at the mirror. It is the difference between I, God was in this place and I didn't even know it and I have met God face to face and he has delivered me. The possibilities of an awakened heart. If we were able to look into the mirror see what's there, face it for what it is, and allow God to change our name little by little. The possibilities of an awakened heart are substantial. I don't want to read this whole section just for a lack of time, but in Genesis 33, the first three verses, we see Jacob interacting with Esau. I don't know if he's still got some tricks up his sleeve or he's doing this to protect himself, But Jacob looks a little bit different than he used to. He actually goes ahead of his family and his servants to face Esau himself. That's pretty cool. It seems like, I don't want to read too much into it, but it seems like there's a little less self-preservation. He actually bows on his knees and honors Esau. Again, I don't know if he's doing that to save his own skin. But one thing is for sure. Jacob's life is significantly changed from this point on. Imagine the outpouring on whole communities of people, whole churches, when dozens, maybe hundreds of people's hearts have been opened to allow God to show them the mirror. Imagine how much more real we can be with each other how much more deeply we can know each other and be known by each other and to be known by God. Imagine how much more effective we can be in mission for we are no longer doing it to be religious and spiritual but because it is actually flowing from a deep place of love for God and neighbor. Imagine the outpouring of hundreds of people's hearts being opened by the power of God to receive. Richard F. Lovelace wrote a book the size of a phone book. Scholar decided to document key factors in revivals throughout history, and one of the key factors he found was self-awareness. He said, before there's ever an outpouring, as he has studied them throughout the centuries, people are always brought to see their own need for Jesus. Always. We need an outpouring today. We need an outpouring upon our church in 2017. We need an outpouring on our families and our communities and our city. We need the fullness of God to be poured out. 
But where is he going to be poured out if our hearts are like this? We need to be open to the presence of God no matter what it costs. And here's the thing. It might cost you a little bit. Jacob walked away with one part of his hip. I'm not saying that God is going to dislocate your hip if you follow him. But what does that hip for Jacob really represent? That was the fulcrum of his life by which he strove against God. That was his leverage. That was his flesh physically, but also figuratively. That was his source of human power. That's what he depended upon. It was his crutch. God mercifully took it out. For you, it might not be your hip. It might be your false self. It might be the things that make you feel good about yourself in the short run. You might take those things out and it might be painful. You might see things about yourself that you're embarrassed by. You might open your heart to people that might see things about yourself that you never wanted them to see. We might become a messy church. God might take out our hip. And my question to you is, is it worth it? Jacob walked away with a limp saying, this is worth it. And Jesus is crying out to his people still to this day through his word saying, you might lose your life in order to find your real life, but I guarantee you it's worth it. In the words of Jesus in John chapter 9 verse 39, I came into this world that those who do not see may see. If this is what you believe, it's got to start in your heart. I want to close with this uh, quote by David Benner that I just, I loved. I just wanted to quote it in its full context. He said, while our self is not God, it is the place where we meet God. There can therefore be no genuine spiritual transformation if we seek some external meeting place. God's intended home is our heart and it is meeting God in the depths of our soul that transforms us from the inside out. Or as Paul would later pray in Ephesians chapter three, may God strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your heart. I'm gonna ask Cody and the worship team to come up and I wanna give you two things. If this is something that you want to take a hold of, I want to make this very simple. Two things to take with you this week. How do I start growing in self-awareness? How do I pay attention to the mirror? You can ask yourself two questions and keep asking yourself these two questions until God starts giving you answers. The first one is, what am I feeling? The psalmist asks this in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is going on in there, God? For you, you might get into a place of solitude and bring some of those places. Maybe you don't even know what's going on. Maybe in relationships, you don't even know what's going on in the moment that it's going on except in retrospect. That's okay. Start there. You start feeling yourself reacting to certain things or, or something is, is moving you. Take a moment, get in the presence of God by yourself and say, Lord, what was I feeling right there? And you might come up with something. You're like, I was just angry. Or I was surprised. Or I was disappointed. And then your second question is this, why? Why? 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil with me? Borrow the question of the psalmist who is so in touch with his emotions and his heart. Why do I feel this way? And keep interrogating your heart until God brings you to a place of breakthrough and transformation. And he will. No matter where we are in this process, some of us are at different points than others, we'll never be done. We can start this morning by asking God these questions. What am I feeling right now? Why do I feel this way? And God, please, I invite you into the process to steer me in the way of everlasting. Heavenly Father, we bring all of this stuff before you right now and lay it before your feet and ask that you would shepherd us great shepherd of the sheep and great shepherd of our souls. We look to you and we say together that you are our shepherd and we shall not want. You lead us beside green pastures. You you restore our souls. And some of us find ourselves in valleys of the shadow of death. And yet even in those you say, you don't have to fear for I am with you. I pray for all of my friends, my brothers and sisters this morning, wherever they find themselves in today, the valleys or the peaks and everywhere in between, that there you would be found. And I pray for us, you just begin this process by pulling down the walls around our heart that we may know ourselves and most importantly, we may know you in a deeper, more real, more honest, more vulnerable, more transformative way. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.